Tabot and this predictive text is actually uh, generated and t- teaching itself to be better based off what we're actually saying. So we're saying that these robots or these technologies aren't good enough, but they're literally being made by our collective voices and like what we think and feel and want and do. The more time that I've spent thinking about these types of technologies and the, the more paranoid I've become basically. I'm Izzy Roberts-Orr, Artistic Director of the Emerging Writers' Festival, and you're listening to the Digital Writers' Festival podcast. The Digital Writers' Festival 2018 is an online festival exploring the unique relationship between technology and storytelling, accessible anywhere, anytime, by anyone with an internet connection. Join us right here in hyperspace between the 30th of October and the 3rd of November and find our full program at digitalwritersfestival.com. Come in, get comfortable and get curious as we hear from storytellers and artists from across the world wide web. If speaking to machines was once a futuristic prospect, we now live in a world where it has become totally normal. We speak to machines when we check out at the supermarket, We speak to machines when we use virtual assistants like Siri or Alexa, and we speak to machines online when booking tickets, paying bills, complaining about customer service. The conversations we have with these machines are mostly constrained by a type of service-like relationship. We ask them for help and they dutifully respond. This means that our conversations are usually functional, banal, or even boring. But what might be the creative possibilities of machine language? As speaking machines become more commonplace, will new forms of expression open up? Will our computers be able to say things that were previously unsayable? Welcome to the Digital Writers Festival podcast. I'm Oscar Schwartz, a writer and researcher currently based in New York. And today I'm joined by Harriet Gillies, a Sydney-based performance artist who, among many other things, recently directed a play whose script was written with predictive text software. Hi, Harriet. Hi, thanks for having me. So I'd like to begin by acknowledging that here in New York, where I am, I'm on the traditional lands of the Lenape people. Yes, and I am on the Kenyan Kahaka Nation's land in Montreal, but Montreal is also historically, historically known as a gathering place for many First Nations people of Canada. Um, but originally I am from... Uh, Sydney, the Gadigal clan of the Eora Nation is the land from, uh, where I'm from. Thanks, Harriet. So the idea of machine speech is, is nothing new. Like Rene Descartes was thinking about talking automatons in the 17th century and Alan Turing basically ushered in the digital age by imagining what it might be like to talk to a human-like computer. But the availability and accessibility of language generators today is letting artists and writers like yourself experiment with machine text and speech in fascinating new ways. Harriet, earlier this year you directed a play called The Lifestyle of the Richard and Family that used predictive text. Can you tell me a bit about the play and the writing process behind it? 
Yeah, so Lifestyle of the Richard Family was a project that was presented at Next Wave Festival this year in Melbourne uh, in partnership with Melbourne Knowledge Week. And the text was developed by the writer Rosalind Helper through a series of text messages where she used a predictive text software called Swift Keynote. Uh, and texted herself using only uh, one of three options uh, given to her as the next possible word she would like to say in a sentence. And from there we took a huge chunk of data and looked at it and explored what patterns were emerging, what surprises were emerging, uh, what things that we were expecting happened or didn't happen, and then structured or edited the text into what became the show, which was two halves. One was one uh, realistic drama episode where we made this nonsensical language come alive in a very dramatic and formal uh, performance structure. And then in the second half, we let the language kind of run a bit more wild as if it was data jumping around uh, wherever the internet is. Mm, Interesting. And how is it performed? Yeah, so we did a development halfway through the process where we got six amazing performers together and they uh, took to performing their text in two different ways. In one way, we tried to make sense of it and tried to humanise it and explore the idea that this was a, a human conversation, this text, And in the other one, we kind of gave it more of the significance of poetry and Mm -hmm. treated the words with more heavy weight, less uh, conversational psychology, more of a um, virtuosic kind of lens. And we got two really different performance styles that both said really interesting things. Uh, So we kind of just mashed the two together and put them both in the show. (laughs) Did you act in the play as well? I performed in the second half as a, a weird cyber reflective siren and essentially wore a silver gimp suit head to toe that had a mermaid tail <laughs> and dragged myself across the stage and got to the front of the stage and sung a song about being lonely while the rest of the cast in the background were using this mirror material called Myla to project uh, the screen with all of the text that was uh, written by the predictive text software across the room and they were kind of shattering the text into like a mirror ball. Uh Oh my God, that sounds totally amazing. I wish I could have seen it. Yeah, it was fun. Well, hopefully the world tour is just around the corner, yet to be confirmed. And so the song that you were singing in that suit at the front of the stage, was that also predictive text? No, that was just a mashup. That was a Hank Williams song who's like an old country music uh, singer-songwriter. But we took uh, the approach of structuring the second half, the kind of more explosive Uh, internet styled half as the form of the internet so one thing that we were really interested in exploring in this show and something I'm really interested in exploring as an artist uh, is the way that the actual form is of the internet and AI and these uh, kind of technological uh, advances are changing our way of approaching meaning making so the second half was kind of what it feels like to search the web so we'd copy and paste things and drag things like we drag jpegs on and off the internet to our desktop we'd uh, we tried to kind of create this visual uh mural or collage of what it feels like to be on the internet wow interesting that you mentioned meaning making because i imagine 
you know, um, the role of a director often is to, you know, help an actor realize a character uh, or realize uh, the personality in certain lines. How did you go about this when a lot of the language in the play was actually, you know, uh, emerging from a computational agent? Well, Oscar, I mean, you'll probably have plenty to say on this too. The most remarkable thing about the process is it's absolutely not hard at all. It's incredibly easy. They're very human sounding words. Uh, And it's amazing how brilliant the human species are at being able to find meaning in sometimes absurd or kind of uh, smashed together sentences. We have this incredible ability to kind of distill the meaning and kind of compute it at lightning speed before we even have had the chance to realise that it kind of didn't even make sense. Mm. Uh, So it was actually really hilarious that in rehearsals it was so rare that we were having a conversation about what this line meant. Like it was, and this is to the credit of the amazing people I worked with, the performers that realised the text, but there was no question because... Uh, the computers sound exactly like us. Like they've been listening. They've been taking our data. They know how we talk and now they talk just like that and it's kind of hilarious and we laugh our whole way through these amazingly profound and uh, stupid at once sentences but then, you know, it's kind of shocking. Yeah, they really can speak quite well, don't you think? Um, Sometimes, sometimes. I mean, I think it it depends on uh, what type of conversation you want to have. If you want to have one that is like, purely discursive and and you know um makes sense in like a, a you know purely serviceable type of way then sometimes they can be kind of frustrating you know when Siri doesn't understand you but if you're open to the more poetic resonances I think yeah definitely can be very compelling mm. I suppose one of the things I'm interested in is trying to really listen to what this technology is saying as if, you know, they were a person and actually trying to listen to what they're trying to tell us. And, um, yeah, sometimes it can be interesting. Like in this show that we made, uh, the apocalypse kept on getting mentioned. Mm. And I said to Rosalind, like, how many times have you talked about the apocalypse? Like, why does this keep on coming up? Is it in your cookies or something? And she was like, Harriet, I have no idea why the apocalypse is mentioned so much by this predictive text. Uh, So, yeah, sometimes... I'm sure we're imbuing uh, far more meaning into that, but that's also part of the beautiful artistic experience of kind of understanding this data. Totally, kind of creepy. Um, so a lot of the conversation with machines and particularly like predictive text, it happens via text on the screen. As a performance artist, how did you bring this to life in, in a more physical space? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um I've been, well, I guess the short answer is both. We played with the significance of the spoken word versus the written word and also the different parts of the brain that are taking in the information when it's written versus when it's uh, spoken to us. So that was something that we were interested in playing with and um, there is a sense of humour that the written word can capture with predictive text that we've become really used to on things like Reddit and a meme culture that actually has a sense of humor that can't be realized through the spoken word so well like it it really works as a written thing rather than a spoken thing yeah so that's something I've started being quite interested in the idea that um the medium is the message like the actual form of the way that the information is given to you is part of it Mm. uh so yeah different ways I guess 
sometimes um you know a reaction that i see when when uh kind of natural language processing or predictive text is used um in artworks or plays or poetry or whatever it is is people's knee-jerk reaction is kind of uh, this is just another case of automation of humans being replaced in some form of labor. How did you kind of come to terms with that, um, with creative agency while you were making this play? Oh my God, Oscar, such a good question. I've been thinking about this so much recently. Um, yeah. So what does, uh, I suppose if technology is going to take the place of, of so many of us, in fact, almost all of us, I've, uh, you know, within the next generation, so ma- such a high percentage of jobs that we have relied on as uh, keeping us alive are just going to be made absolutely redundant by technology, and we're not going to. People aren't going to be needed to fight wars, and they're not going to be fighted. Uh, they're not going to be needed to make things in factories because it's all going to be replaced by robots. So what do we do? And that's an interesting question. And I feel like uh, civilization is still stuck in an old model of trying to figure it out. I think, however, um, it's interesting to think about this idea that I read in Yuval Harari's book Homo Deus, which is the great decoupling, and that's the technological advancement of the decoupling between intelligence and consciousness. And now on Earth we have consciousness with intelligence, but for the first time we have something that is intelligent but isn't conscious. So I suppose what humans are going to need to do is figure out how to make our consciousness more important than the intelligence of machines. And uh, as an artist, I think art is going to be really instrumental in that shift. And Susan Sontag has an amazing quote uh, that I think of often, which is, To put it very generally, art and art making is a form of consciousness. The materials of art are the variety of forms of consciousness. And Mm. one of the tasks art has assumed is making forays into and taking up positions on the frontiers of consciousness and reporting back what's there. So I suppose I think that art can be the tool that allows humans to think about what we have that is past this a function that we've so relied upon before but is going to be replaced by artificial intelligence. Being, being like it, it, it will perhaps, you know, in a certain sense fill a, uh, an existential void as the jobs kind of go the way of the robots. Yeah, and I suppose it'll make us reassess more at a wider social level how we ascribe value in society and is it based on what you're worth or is it based on a purpose you have um in life Hmm. what reaction did you get to this play and the fact that you used predictive text were people outraged do they think it was funny people thought it was really funny and I think there's a really nice game that you get to play and I'm sure you'd know about this with and even we play it on our phones at home with Siri where we like to trick the technology and we like to think that we're more clever than the technology so we tell Siri to say stupid things or um uh in the instance of this show some people once they figured out what was going on really enjoyed laughing at the silliness of the of the algorithm coming up with this kind of nonsense Mm. so there was that uh there was that kind of experience my favorite thing that someone said was I have no idea what just happened but I really had fun (laughs) um that for me was very good that sounds uh, like people, every day for me. 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's the way we're going. Um, and other people find it intimidating. A lot of people um, are gen- have genuine concerns and uh, worries about technology, you know, one of the many boiling pots that seems to be over uh, boiling at the moment in our world. But uh, there is a lot of really serious threats and in a lot of instances where losing ground in making ethical decisions around the internet. So some people, when that level of the show hits them, can be quite confronted, as I think we all can be. Mm. So it does bring up that kind of existential um, thinking about what our purpose is that the show kind of went there? Yeah, and I think another thing that it confronted me with, I'm, I wouldn't be so bold as to suggest that the audience walked away with such a deep and profound uh, experience because I kind of sat with this for three years as opposed to 90 minutes. But um, I suppose also it a lot of it to me starts to reflect on the futility of language mm-hmm. and this idea of... Uh, narrative being this thing that was really important because it is the way that humans coordinate and mass coordination is what made humans evolve into such a sophisticated species Uh, but also narrative is actually maybe all lies and all propaganda of different kinds and there isn't an objective truth and I think uh, we all kind of deep down know that a little bit or that can sit with us at a level, but then when we see something like a random algorithm being able to make something beautiful that makes us feel beautiful things, it can kind of like prod at that like existential question a little bit. Mm. You mentioned before um, the way that these type of art projects, uh, they they, they raise certain ethical questions and these ethical questions around machines talking have been present since the very first chatbot was created by Joseph Weizenbaum in the 1970s. Do you know, are you familiar with the story of Eliza and Joseph Weizenbaum? Yeah. Um, and I also love the story of the, of Dr. Turing, but um, please, please tell me the story again. Cause I'd love to hear you tell me. Yeah. So Weizenbaum was a computer scientist and he um, created a chatbot that he called Eliza that basically worked like a Rogerian psychotherapist. So it was, you know, unconditional positive regard and question asking. And he, so he made, you know, you would speak to it via um, a typewriter that was connected to a computer and he tested it out on his students at MIT and his secretary as well. And he was famously very disturbed um, by the fact that a lot of them were beginning to tell, divulge secrets to the machine, even though they knew it was just a machine. And he was particularly disturbed by the fact that his secretary, who um, saw him build the whole thing from scratch, uh, asked him to leave the room so she could have a moment of privacy with mm-hmm. Eliza. And he ended up writing a book um, a few years later which basically said, um, you know, making machines talk as if they were humans is deeply unethical because it's manipulative and it preys on our deep sense of loneliness and need for validation. (laughs) Um, And we have to stop this right away because otherwise our society will be screwed. What, What did these kind of questions, were they raised for you in the process of making this project? Um. Yes, they are and they aren't. I mean, what we're dealing with, with, I mean, in this kind of technological 
innovative revolutionary time is kind of technology with great capacity and any technology with great capacity can, can be applied in a positive or negative way or in a, um, you know, whatever kind of binary you want to put there. But um, so I think for me, I'm interested in, I'm tr- I try not to become judgmental about uh, picking a side of whether or not it's more detrimental or more beneficial to the movement of society or the, mm-hmm. you know, bettering of society. Um, but I totally, per- on a personal note, feel those things all the time. And um, I found myself when directing this show, you know, really falling in love with characters and the characters uh, are just absolute nonsense that were like totally randomly put there. So I feel like um, that's a, quite a shocking realisation that I, uh, about humans more than it is necessarily about technology. I think I'm starting to realise that it's, that I think it's more interesting that humans are so incredibly able to buy into things and to uh, uh, suspend their imagination uh, in order to believe in things and care about things and invest in things. So, yeah, I guess that's the thing that I've started to think about more deeply. Mm. Do you, are you a big user of Siri or Alexa or any other type of virtual assistant? Yeah, so that's like totally hilarious. No, I'm not. Are you, Oscar? I'm not. No, I occasionally like chat with Siri, but then become like frustrated and then just try and break it. <laughs> yeah, I feel like I'm quite an old fart in that respect, and I'm quite of a tech, uh, quite a technological voyeur. Um, and I don't buy into a lot of these technologies, but I am really fascinated in watching other people. I went to my friend's house the other day and she has a whole Alexa system that's set up to cameras and so she can see her house. We were out at the bar and she just, like, went on her phone and could see her dog, like, in her house and, wow. like, uh, tell the machine to put on things in the kitchen. Um, and, yeah, I find it absolutely morbidly fascinating but um too scared to jump in myself but that being said I uh, am not by any means like an Edward Snowden uh I still am totally too lazy to do anything ethical in like reprimanding the the bullshit terms in which I live most of my life online (laughs) Mm. it's interesting because I the more time that I've spent thinking about these types of technologies and the the more paranoid I've become basically and you know in in um if you are interacting with Alexa there's this kind of sense that you're it's like a it's all a big act it's as if you're speaking to a person but really you're speaking to a corporation and that corporation is Amazon and what they're doing is they're collecting all your data um and you know as as an artist or as a writer when you use these tools to examine questions of human identity and emotion, you're also kind of interacting with these big corporations. Is it? Is this something that's dawned on you, you know, in, in your practice? Yeah, I mean, uh, the internet uh, and the ownership of uh, personal information is something that I've been interested in and have worked on across a lot of projects. And 
I've started doing, like I'm still kind of taking the piss of it all in quite a fun, I like to make my audience laugh at stuff like that, hopefully in a way that makes them see it in a different light and make them think about it. But for instance, the last few shows I've done, all of my music has been operated off YouTube and all the audience have to sit through the ads of, on the YouTube before the song plays and like we all just watch like a trailer for the new Pirates of the Caribbean movie and then like go into this really like sad you know like poetic like dance piece um so little things like that where the pervasiveness of the internet I'm kind of not letting the holiness of art uh get away with it that easy I like to put some of that in there to let us know that we're all being watched but also uh it's changed my approach to copyright uh, pretty mm. radically and that's something that you've kind of touched on you were just saying earlier um, and it's you know always been hard for artists to especially performance artists to navigate like a way to commodify their value in the world but um, now with the dis- you know the way that the internet and uh, AIs can distribute media and content to one another is kind of revolutionizing that whole game too and like It'll be interesting to see where copyright goes once this interconnectedness kind of continues to rise. So has do you feel like these distribution methods have, have made it easier for you to monetize your work or more difficult? Uh, I suppose it's <laughs> my initial reaction to that question is that it makes it almost more obsolete in a very idealistic sense. Maybe like this technology is bringing on a revolution that will like bring down capitalism, but that's not true because so much of this technology and something that we haven't talked about, which is quite serious, which uh, has to be spoken about with AI is um, the data that is put into these algorithms, right? So all of AI is made of algorithms and algorithms are given a function or a, or a code by humans and that that code and that uh, data has biases inherently in it. So we act like we're not, you know, we act like artificial intelligence has this kind of mind of its own and has this intelligence above us, but we also need to remember that it's made in our image because in the same way that we made God in our image, if that's a fair thing to say uh, in my own personal uh, lived experience, um, also the internet is being and technology and artificial intelligence is being shaped by us and our biases are there and there's so much data um, and amazing people doing research into how racist and sexist data is because so much of it is done in an industry that's heavily dominated by like uh, white men. So that changes the data. So that's uh, another interesting thing to think about. Absolutely. I mean, um and also, to not a, a, a not least, to say that most of artificial intelligence and most technology has always um, been associated immediately in its first functions to sex or violence. So you know, we know that AI was uh, the race to AI was between AI soldiers and AI sex robots. Um, so there's also something interesting going on in the psychology of our relationship to these um, beings there. Totally, uh, and also <clears throat> often the the in movies and um, you know in the in these kind of virtual assistant applications like Siri and Alexa, they're gendered as female. Yeah, which is uh, I think 
Um, Laurie Penny has a really good article about why that might be the case. Um, yeah, and I can't remember, but there's a couple of apps that are very notably male and they're, they're, they have a different purpose. But I think the women are, or the female voices are always like the ones that look after us. Or, and, and take orders. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, but back on the topic of, of bias, it's, it is kind of something to grapple with when talking about yeah, machine language or, or language generators. We saw a few years ago now Microsoft's bot that they let onto Twitter became racist and home. Taybot? Yeah. Oh, Taybot. What are you doing, babe? Yeah, yeah what are you doing? Oh, uh, and get then, yourself together, Taybot. <laughs> and then we've also also saw uh, language generators that have been shown to associate words in a certain way. So computer programmer was associated with the word man, whereas homemaker was associated with the word woman. Um, as exactly. An and I, everyone can do this as a fun take-home uh, game. Just next time you're using predictive text, watch the different gender connotations that come up. It is very interesting and it does not take long to make you realise that you're dealing with a very biased algorithm. It's like very rich um, content for an, a creative person to work with. Have you had ideas about how to explore these ideas? Well, the wonderful thing, Oscar, is that it's a paradox because we it, because Taybot and this predictive text is actually uh, generated and t- teaching itself to be better based off what we're actually saying. So we're saying that these robots or these technologies aren't good enough, but they're literally being made by our collective voices and like what we think and feel and want and do because they're all tracking all of that. So it's this kind of wonderful tension in which to place art and I think all really good art that makes me feel things or uh, have amazing experiences is stuff that sits within a paradox and lets me live and experience that um, contradiction because it's something that rationally doesn't make sense but in a lived embodied sense we all have experienced uh, contradictions or paradoxes so yeah I think it's definitely an interesting place to be making art um, I think I'm I'm interested in satire and we're still in a place where uh, there is so much rich kind of material in satirizing this form just by pointing at it, you know. We're still quite interested in it because it's still really new. Um, mm-hmm. But also uh, it being really new also means that it's still really unsafe, you know. Like I listened to a podcast about algorithms the other day and there was a wonderful academic on it and she was saying that when the car was invented uh it didn't come with airbags or seatbelts these were things that came with time because the consumer demanded it and uh the thing about algorithm and technology is so much of it is invisible to us and so much of it we don't understand so as consumers of this technology we don't actually have the same awareness of what changes it's having on us like algorithms and AIs can be changing your schedule or deciding whether or not you get in, get a job or get a home loan. Uh, so yeah, I suppose at some point I feel like there's going to be a time where it stops pointing at it and starts or like laughing at it or laughing with it and starts maybe being a time for activism, but also the fact that we're aware of it and having these conversations now means maybe we will be able to steer it, in the right direction before it's too late. But the funny thing is that the people who are most scared about AIs and are telling us 
that to be afraid of AIs are the ones who are going into laboratories and making them better every day. It's true, but for kind of different reasons. They don't seem to be as scared about things like bias. They have these like um, teenage boy fantasies of, of military takeover, etc. Yeah, and this kind of idea that uh, science is uh, ultimately objective um, and maybe it is, but our interpretation of it and our practising of it will always be biased because we are only ourselves at the end of the day. <laughs> it's true. Um, back on topic you just raised just before um, about how it is difficult to understand precisely how these algorithms work and, and how language is generated by an application like Siri or predictive text. Did you find that um, you had to learn about these technologies in greater depth when you embarked on this project? And do you think that it's incumbent on an artist to learn how these technologies work if they want to use them? Uh, I don't think that artists should have to learn more about these technologies necessarily. Um, I still feel like, you know, I'm, you know, that feeling when your mum first got email and you had to teach her how to send an email and it was really frustrating. You got really angry. Like I still feel like I'm that person in the room whenever we have like a discussion about the technology, I still have a very basic understanding of it. And also, my brain isn't wired in a way that particularly understands coding. I've tried to learn how to code and quickly realized I didn't have the uh, patience to stick with it. So uh, I think the beauty about artists and art is that they look at it in a, they look at these technologies perhaps in a different light to how other people are looking at it. So rather than understanding Mm. what it does and, um, kind of using a more uh, functional understanding of it, I have been really drawn to looking at what it, what is the structure of it, what does it what what does it actually look like, and what patterns and rhythms does it make, and how how do we where do we see them in nature, and where do we see them in human interaction, and what can that tell us? Or um, for even for instance, I, at the moment, my next project is looking at the rise of. Uh, the image language over an alphabet language on the internet through meme culture and how that's making us use our right side of our brain more than previously because the written word focuses on using the left hemisphere of the brain. Uh, so even just things like that. So it's, I suppose it's about exploring this theme in its most abstract and kind of random ways, but you might hit on something genius or or you mm. might just have a good party doing something about nothing much. <laughs> when did you first become interested in incorporating technological phenomena into your practice? Uh, I start. I was part of an art partnership called Zin, which was myself and Rosalind Helper who wrote the script for Lifestyle of the Rich and Family. Um, and we uh, meet, uh, came to working with technology out of more of a practical necessity to create, we wanted to make shows that allowed audiences to have agency in the kind of artist audience experience by using forms that were part of everyday life. So we were interested in how could you do a performance like over the telephone or, and then yeah, 
technology just I guess it's the age we were it was it was 2009 you know we all had Facebook accounts like uh and (laughs) I suppose Mm. these technologies that were around us just were the things that we knew how to use and we knew our audience knew how to use so for instance we did a show called uh the internet is where innocence goes to die and you can come to and that was a show where we surfed the internet for an hour in the theater and the audience watches our screen while we surf the internet but we do a Facebook chat with the audience so normal audience interaction like oh my god just I'd sooner you know pick my toenails off I would be really terrified but the immediate uh, the second you say oh just talk to me on Facebook it's so easy so I, I suppose we found that there was an accessibility to these technologies um, that became a really important part of our practice and then from there the more we use them the more we interrogated what they were and how they exist in the world and I suppose that's the direction that yeah my practice advanced in. Mm. Where's your favorite place on the internet now? Oh my god uh such a good question and I don't know I've actually been really internet lazy of late uh I just got back onto reddit I've I mean reddit is kind of like a beautiful town square of wonderful eccentricities mm-hmm. I love the app Binky which was is an app that looks like social media but it isn't connected to anything so it's just scrolling and liking images but just by yourself in a void nice. and um so you click like reshare and the thing says do you want to reshare this thing that means it does absolutely nothing and you click yes and then all these like thumbs up go everywhere and they're like reshare and it's about like trying to give people the dopamine hit of social media scrolling which is the exact same dopamine hit that you get uh with pokies and leads to gambling addiction but that's another conversation perhaps um but just (laughs) in a void so yeah i like that app a lot what about you Oh, I'm going through a little bit of a crisis with the internet at the moment, I think, as a lot of people are. I just find myself, like, scrolling on Twitter and feeling terrible about it. But, you know, that's just life on the internet in 2018. It's a really low time, Oscar, and I think that we'll see a change soon. I mean, I was babysitting someone recently and she was 13 and she was like, you have a Facebook account? Ooh, oh, my God, who has Facebook? Literally, like, those exact words. And so I was like, oh, okay. So I'm already an old fart when it comes to this stuff. And I think, you know, maybe we're we're caught in an interesting time and um, if anything's certain, it's the advancement of the technologi- technological revolution. Uh, mm. I hope that there'll be a backlash and there'll be a generation of people who understand their internet, their their responsibilities on the internet and using technology but also they'll start valuing their privacy more and we'll see proper regulation. I mean, that's all stuff that's still, um, you know, changes so at the beginning, but I think it could perpetually get better. What do you think, I mean, how do you see, you've talked about satire. Do you you see your work potentially moving into activism or consciousness raising around these kind of more pernicious elements of the internet and predictive text and data harvesting and all those types of things? Yeah, I mean, I'm caught in another little paradox, Oscar, because I feel that sometimes I do want to go away and start writing about it or like, you know, organising um a collection of people but then I come back to the idea that actually I think 
the best way to say the things I want to say is through art and not the written word and not through the game that we're playing. And I suppose um, I'm interested in art because I'm interested in imagining possible futures. Uh, I don't think I necessarily know how to get there, but I feel like if we can imagine something, it can become so. So I suppose I think my best efforts are at the front of the plane trying to imagine the thing that then can become possible, that then can actually happen. Um, Mm. So I suppose I'm interested in playing the long game. (laughs) So I'm going to ask you a question based exactly off that. So if you, this is a hard question, if you had, you know, the capacity to invent any type of talking machine that you wanted, um, what would you invent? How, How would you... How would you shape the kind of future of this of this technology? Um, one thing I'm interested in at the moment is the idea that history is all a lie that one person got to tell us. And I suppose I'm really interested, for instance, in Australia, where we're both from, we have a rich history that's 60,000 years old of pioneers and innovators and amazing uh inventors and we don't hear about it so maybe i'd like a a robot who was able to find all of the data and give you the alternative possibilities of history that aren't the dom that 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 go against the dominant narrative that we see in the world around us because then maybe um we'd start being able to throw away traditions that aren't helping us anymore and are hurting us. Mm, that sounds like a fantastic but. That was such a stupid answer though. I'm so sorry. I'm going to think of such a better answer like within two minutes of this podcast finishing and then I'm going to be like, oh, snap. I thought that was a good answer. Um, and just one final question. Um, have you come across any other people working in this area who you're like, damn, that's really cool stuff? Oh, yes. Um, yes, so many people. Um, uh, and so many, one of the things that's really interesting about this art f- uh, kind of area of art is a lot of it is gorilla. So there's a couple of gorilla groups I follow that do. I mean, I also think that, Oh, this is a big question. So, yeah, to to stay on the deeply philosophical route that we're at, there's a thing that I've been really interested in recently, which is swatting, which is a very dangerous thing that people do online um, where they uh, – have you heard of this? They will no. be playing video games against someone and they'll have their face up like on chat so you can mm-hmm. see who's playing each other. And then someone calls a SWAT team and says that there's a terrorist threat ah, or yes, something yes. like this onto the person playing the video game. And on yeah. the on the screen you can watch the SWAT team come in and destroy this person in their actual house yeah. even though you're playing a game on the online space. And so I've started thinking about uh, these acts of, of um, web performance, I suppose, mm-hmm. and what what consists what is a performative act and who is the audience of a, of a performative act when it happens in a URL space as opposed to an IRL space 
And in that, is it the people watching online? Is it the police? Is it the person who the police attack? Um, and so all of this, I think, is really interesting. Um, there's also another group of artists who don't have, uh, who are all anonymous, but they go into Minecraft. And once they have set up their survival, whatever they need to survive in Minecraft, uh, they start making sculptures in Minecraft and just have the like acres and acres of these beautiful sculptures made just by digging in Minecraft. Uh, so I suppose I'm still really interested in, oh, and Raphael Lozano Hemmer, who's an amazing artist who just had a retrospective here in Montreal, did a beautiful piece where he generated, uh, used an algorithm to generate five different languages and 50 million sentences made up of a collection of those languages. And the work is going to take 50 years to be performed fully. And each question, it's not, um, not sentences, questions, and each question is only mentioned once. So you're watching it and a little question comes up and you read it and it goes away. And that's the only time that question will be asked by this artwork. And it's going to take 50 years to go through them all. So that's really beautiful. I like a lot of pieces that show the futility of it all. And even, not just of humans, but the futility of technology too. Mm. Wow, that sounds like an amazing piece. Well, um, thanks. For, that's all my questions. Thanks so much for a brilliant conversation. Oscar, thank you. It's been great chatting with you um, and uh, let's keep in touch about all things AI. Definitely. I look forward to seeing your future work. Yeah, maybe our two AIs can meet sometime. Great idea. Yeah, cool. <laughs> The Emerging Writers Festival brings you the Digital Writers Festival again in 2018. And you can find the full program live online now. Check it out at digitalwritersfestival.com and join us to listen, learn and play right here in hyperspace from the 30th of October until the 3rd of November. Our theme music is the magical Huntley's Please from their EP Songs in Your Name. Find them on Facebook as Huntley Music. This podcast was recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge that First Nations peoples are the first storytellers of this land and that their sovereignty has never been ceded. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and to the Elders of the lands this podcast reaches. <laughs>